Hey, good morning, Flourishing Grace. Um, and thanks for joining us. Maybe you're joining us for the very first time uh, ever this morning. I want to say welcome. My name is Josh Knight. I'm the pastor of Preaching and Vision here at Flourishing Grace. Um, and it's great to have you tuning in with us um, in this season of social distancing. Uh, for those of you who are gathered together in house churches this morning, uh, I just want to give a special shout out to all of our house churches. A big thank you to all of our house church leaders who are every single week um, gathering people into uh, homes throughout all of Davis County um, to, to create a smaller gathering where we can uh, kind of keep the spread of COVID-19 uh, to a minimum, to, to a low. And so uh, during this time and this, this strategy that we're implementing here at Flourishing Grace, man, those leaders have stepped up big time. Just want to give a big shout out uh, to them. We're going to get into the word this morning. Uh, but before we do, we're going to receive a, a quick offering. Um, obviously, right now, we're not uh, giving offering in uh, an offer, offering basket in a kind of a traditional way. Everything is online at flourishinggrace.org slash give, flourishinggrace.org slash give. And so for those of you who call Flourishing Grace Church home and have been faithful to continue giving uh, in this time online in a digital way, man, I just want to say, man, thank you. Thank you for, for continuing to support the ministry of Flourishing Grace as our staff has worked tirelessly behind the scenes um, to produce ministry resources for you and for your families um, as we're thinking about the fall and everything that we want to do here at Flourishing Grace. Uh, for those of you where it's become a little bit harder, a little bit more cumbersome, maybe you're used to kind of traditionally put it in the basket, I just want to encourage you, man, to go online um, and not to neglect giving during this time to flourishinggrace.org slash give um, and give there. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for our offering. Uh, we'll receive it and then uh, we'll dive into the word this morning. Let's pray. Yeah, Father, we come before you and we just lift you up uh, this morning, uh, lift you up in our house churches, lift you up in our living rooms, lift you up in our kitchens, um, and throughout all of Davis County, and for everybody who's tuning in everywhere, I mean, we just lift you up, I pray that you would, right now, that there would be a special sense of your presence, that we would increase our awareness of it, that we would know that you are with us, that you are near, right now, in this moment, in this hour, you are near to us. And as your church gathers, whether that's in a building like this or in someone's home, there's a special presence there. Would you make it known to us this morning? Thank you for the way that you have blessed flourishing grace over these uh, few strange and hard months. And as we look to the future, I pray that you would continue to give us wisdom and courage to face whatever may come next. But more than all of that, I pray that you would draw us all the more near to yourself. That you would remind each person every single day and encourage each person every single day to be in your word. And to be a fervent in prayer. To not neglect those core essential disciplines of our faith. That we'd have intimacy with you. That we would know you. Would you help us now as we open your word and to grow near to you in that way? Pray these things in your name, in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. All right, Flourishing Grace. Uh, go ahead and pull out your Bibles. We're going to be uh, flipping around a little bit, not nearly as much as last week, um, but we're going to start off in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 12 um, is where we're going to begin this morning. Um, and here's where, we, where we've been. For those of you who are maybe... Uh, Maybe even out of town or maybe you're just tuning in for the first time. We started a new series two weeks ago called In the Presence. 
in the presence. And what we've covered so far is that number one, God's kind of one of God's primary goals for your life is his presence. We see the, the bookends of all of his creation, the story of his creation, the bookend from the Garden of Eden all the way through uh, into the second coming in Revelation is the presence of God. The Garden of Eden, full presence of God. Uh, at the end, in the new heavens, a new earth, full presence of God. And everything in between has been this kind of strategy and this plan from God to get his people to crave and hunger for and return to his presence once again. God knows that, that's, where, that's, that's where we should be. That, that's what we're created for, right? And so we see God, God's plan and God's purpose for his presence in our lives. But then last week, we looked at our need for his presence, our need for his presence and your need for his presence. God knows that our greatest need is his presence. That's where true flourishing happens, or as the psalmist says, right? That's where the fullness of joy is. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore, right? That's our, the presence of God is what we need. Last week, we looked at King Solomon, who had all of this dominion and all of this wealth and all of these possessions and all of this wisdom and all of these things. And what he, he knew he needed more than he needed anything else was the presence of God. And so he devoted masses of, of wealth and time and energy into constructing the temple so that the presence of God would be near to him and near to his people. He knew the importance of the presence of God. We need the presence of God. And we know that when there's ruin and destruction, right? When the, when the world is on fire, the presence of God is left. When, when, there's, when, the, when there is just brokenness and despair, ruin and destruction, when the world is burning, the presence of God has left the building. And friends, if you turn on the news right now, right, that's what you see, right? We see insane injustice, horrible racism, disease that is spreading across the world and killing millions of people. We, this is what we see when we turn on the news. We see hatred and bickering and yelling and gossip, all of these horrible things. The presence of God has left the building. So the cry of the church right now, the cry of the church right now, of course is, how do we get that back? That's the natural response. But before we can get into how do we regain the presence of God, that's where we're going to be going over the next few weeks. But before we get there, we must ask the question, how did we lose it? How, how did we lose it? And for so many of us who are watching this right now or listening to me right now, you're like, I know how we lost it. Those people over there started doing that thing and those people over there started doing this thing and that person over there started leading this crazy thing and saying these crazy things and that's how we lost it. Right? We, we, got, we got people doing all kinds of stupid things. That guy over there, that's how we lost it. What about you? What's your role in the presence of God? No, not me. No, I'm not the problem. If you're a follower of Jesus, we know that in, in you, in you is the hope of glory. The presence of God in you is the hope of glory for a world that has been wrecked and ravaged by sin. The hope of the world is the presence of God in you. It doesn't matter what that person over there is doing or what those people over, over there are doing. What are you doing? Where is the presence of God in your life? And so it's an important question to ask, not what have they done to push away, to drive out the presence of God, but what have I done? That's the question that I want you and I to wrestle through this morning. What have you done to drive out the presence of God? 
Let's look at Deuteronomy together. Deuteronomy 12, 29 through 31. This is just going to kind of set set the, the pace and the tone, um, kind of the backdrop of the rest of our time this morning. Here's uh, what Deuteronomy says. Deuteronomy 12, 29. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go to in disposes. Um, so here's what he's saying. This is the people of Israel. They've, they've come out of Egypt and God's going to send them in the promised land. When that happens... And you dispossess them, right, when you kick them out of the land and dwell in their land. Take care that you be not ensnared to follow them. And they have been destroyed, after they have been destroyed, and and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods, that I may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they have even burned their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Whoa. All right. We're off, we're off to a crazy start. Um, he, here's, here's, what, here's what you need to understand. In, in the ancient world, Okay, in in the ancient world, um, man, the way that we move our human agenda forward is the presence of God. What separates uh, the the ancient world from our kind of modern um, and even postmodern society right now, like the American way is we're going to figure this out on our own. We're going to create a strategy. We're going to pick ourselves by the bootstraps and we're going to get her done. In the ancient world is, man, we need a God to provide for us. And so what they would do is they would, they would build temples and high places of worship where they, would, where, they would, where they would seek to manipulate the gods in order to move their, um, kind of their human agenda forward. And the things that they would do is they would, they would obviously, they would offer sacrifices. They would offer bulls and goats and birds and all kinds of sacrifices. They perform sexual acts on the altar in order to gain, right, in order to gain some sort of um, fertility for their, for their wife or for their family or, or whatever it may be. And, and in the worst case scenario, they would, they would do human sacrifices on the altar, right, in order to gain the attention of their gods, right? If the, if the gods' eyes and ears could be tickled, maybe, maybe they'd be kind of aroused from their slumber enough to say, oh, I see what you need. Okay, you're, you're, I see, I smell the scent of burning goats. All right, I, oh, you need rain. I'll send you some rain. Oh, wow, that's some, that's some interesting sexual things going on on the altar there. Uh, you've got me aroused. Okay, I'll give your family fertility. Well, okay, I hear the screams of your children from the altar. Okay, that looks pretty desperate. Here's some rain for your crops. Okay, um, th- this was the mentality of the day. We know we need the presence of God. And so they would try to do these things in order to compel God to do things for them. We see this even in the Bible, right? Um, in 1 Kings 18, uh, there's this epic story where Elijah uh, um, challenges the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asher, right? So there's 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asher, uh, and they've killed all of the prophets of Yahweh. All of the prophets of God are, are gone. They're dead except for one, right? Elijah. And so Elijah kind of shows up and he challenges 
challenges them. He says, okay, you build your altar over there. Okay, you put, some, put a bull on that, but don't light it. I'll build mine over here. I'll put a bull on that, but I'm not going to light it. And whoever's God lights the fire, that's the true God. And so from morning to evening, the prophets of Baal and Asher, these 850 prophets, um, scream and yell and dance around this altar, and God doesn't show up. And then Elijah begins to, to poke fun at them, which is the best part of the story, right? It's like, well, maybe, maybe your God's taking a nap. Maybe he's, I don't know, maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's going pee. Maybe he should scream louder. Like, that's, that's what he says. It's amazing. And so they begin to cut themselves. These 850 prophets begin to cut themselves, and there's blood just spilling all over the altar, and their God never shows up. Long story short, very long story short, um, you should check it out later. Uh, Elijah dumps water all over his, his altar. There's no way it's going to lie, and God sends fire and just disintegrates it all. Just, just burns it to dust. It's an amazing story. Um, but we see this kind of, kind of trying to manipulate their gods in order to, to move their human agenda forward. We see this even in the people of Israel, right? Um, the people of Israel, when they're led out of slavery in Egypt, right, the, the, the golden calf, um, so, so they're led out of slavery in Egypt. Um, the, the sea parts, they see all these amazing things, manna from heaven, all of these amazing things. God is providing for them in amazing ways. Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai and he stays a little too long. He's in the presence of God for a little too long. And they begin to get worried. These people are like, well, what if he doesn't come back? Like, what, what are we going to do? We don't have a strategy. We don't have a plan. We don't have a leader. What are we, we going to do? Now, again, as I said before, in our kind of Western mentality, we're like, okay, we'll just develop a strategy. We'll develop a plan. Um, we're going to get her done. We're going to get the money. We're going to get the power. We're going to figure it out. We're going we're to lead this nation forward. That's what we do. Not in ancient times. What, you see, they knew what they needed was the presence of God. You see, they were actually smarter than us in so, in so many ways. They knew they needed a God in order to move their agenda forward. And they were right. We're wrong. They, they were right. They were right. They knew they needed the presence of God. Now, the means to which they sought that presence of God was wrong. They, they, they melted down all of their gold. They built this golden calf. They began to worship it in order to kind of, again, tickle the eyes and ears of some foreign God so that, so that, that God might give them a strategy and money and power in order to lead the nation forward. And, of course, it didn't, didn't work out that way, okay? But what they, what they knew they needed was the presence of God, and they were right. The way they went about it was wrong. What they knew they needed was actually correct. Here's the point. There was a time that in order to move our human agenda forward, we needed to worship idols. The way that we get more is to tickle the ears and the eyes of the gods. It never worked, and it always led to a lack of human flourishing. As the idols come in, the presence of God goes out. What we see again and again and again throughout thousands of years of history, throughout the scriptures, is as the leaders and as the people of the day turn from God, turn from Yahweh towards the idols of their day, the presence of God leaves. And he takes the flourishing and the goodness that comes with the presence of God with him. You can't have both. You cannot have true human flourishing without the presence of God. Here's what author uh, J. Ryan Lister writes. So I quoted him last week, this, this book, The Presence of God. has been a great resource even in preparing for this series. He says it this way. He says, rebellion and punishment 
characterize Israel's history, rebellion and punishment. Though they have been called out of bondage to draw near to Yahweh, their disobedience drives them further and further away from him to the point where they are altogether removed from the land of promise. In the end, Israel's steps from Sinai are not the steps of a joyous procession into the eschatological experience of the God's presence as they should have been, but rather a long and treacherous march to exile. Here's what he says. He says, God led them out of slavery in Egypt so that they could be once again rejoined and rebuilt, reformed into his presence. It should have been from that moment, from when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, that should have been the beginning of the journey into a deeper and deeper and deeper presence of God for this entire nation of people. It should have been this amazing and wonderful thing, but it wasn't because of their idolatry. They turn from God and begin to worship other things in order to move their human agenda forward. And their story is marked by destruction and ultimately exile and a lack of the presence of God, a removal of the presence of God. And I wonder this morning, I wonder how many of you, I wonder this morning if you, in the same way, were once perhaps Called out, of ex, called out of slavery, called out of darkness and brought into, into the marvelous light, called, called out of spiritual darkness and brought into the light of God by the blood of his son so that you might be once again brought into his presence. And I wonder how many of us have lifted our gaze and begun to seek to serve other things in this world, idols of this world, in order to move our human agenda forward. Believing that maybe flourishing is found over there, over there, over there, over there, rather than all that God has already provided us in his presence. And I wonder for how many of us listening this morning, the presence of God has left our lives and we wonder, man, why does does that person have this deep, rich experience with God? Or why is that that person's, um, when they talk about God, they talk about it in this way. And I I don't understand that. Why does my spirituality feel so dry? Why does my relationship with God feel so distant? Why why does it feel so 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 much more work for me? Could it be? The presence of God has left your life. Because unknowingly to you, you sought the idols of our day. You see, see, the people in in ancient times, they didn't didn't do this knowingly. They didn't didn't do it knowingly. They were doing what was normal for them in the day. They're doing what was normal for them in the day. There, there is this, there is this, there's this propensity to, towards, towards walking away from God throughout all of human history. We, we see it again and again and again and again, right? All of the great kings in ancient Israel, right, who know, many of them had actually experienced the presence of God, turn away from his presence in order to find, but I like what they have over there, and so I'm going to go worship this thing. I like what they have over there, and so I'm going to go worship those gods. And the presence of God leaves them. And if the, if the ancient kings and the great rulers and leaders of ancient Israel failed to, to seek fully the presence of God, what makes you or I think that we're going to like nail it? Like, oh yeah, they, they did it that way, but I'm not going to do it that way. It's not that way anymore. We don't worship that way anymore. 
We don't worship that way anymore. It's not, it's not the same for us as it was for them, right? Um, God doesn't even respond the way that he did back there. That's not the same. Are you kidding me? Over the past two weeks, that's all I've tried to do is show you it is the same. We have the same need for the temple as they had back then, whether you realize it or not. We have the same need for the presence of God today as they had back then. And here's what I want you to see today. We have the same propensity to turn from our God to the idols of our day as they did back then. We have the same propensity to turn from our God to the idols of our day as they did back then. We are still a people dependent on the presence of God. Moreover, we are now the temple. We are the temple. And the idols of our world around us are constantly trying to pull us out of holiness. How much more diligent must we be if we are ever to experience the presence of God. Now, some of you are saying, wait a second, Josh. No, 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 I'm I'm confused. I don't understand. Listen, there's there's no bulls being burnt in my backyard, okay? There's no golden calves in my house. Like, I'm not worshiping idols. Like, that's not, that's not what I do. Well, what is an idol? What is an idol? Golden calf is not an idol. Bulls on an altar are not an idol. Those are the means of serving an idol. Here's what Tim Keller writes in his book, Counterfeit Gods, and I would encourage you, if you have not read the book, Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller, I would encourage you to uh, check out that book and, and read it, um, especially if today something kind of like strikes you um, and you say, man, may, maybe, maybe I have slipped into um, loving something more than I love God. This is a great book uh, for you to read. Here's what Tim Keller says. He says, an idol is anything, anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Let me read that again. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. And anything that you seek to give you what only God can give you. Anything. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination. That, that, that line is so convicting. Where do you spend your, your imagination? What do you daydream about? What, what do you think about when, when you have a, an instant, a moment of free time? Where are you spending your time? Where are you spending your money? Anything that you give more attention to, more love to, more devotion to, more thought to than God is an idol. Anything. And idols, idols are cultural norms. You see, in ancient times, they didn't, they didn't think, man, I'm, 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 I'm committing idolatry. They didn't, they didn't think that. They didn't think I'm worshiping an idol. When, when they fashioned the golden calf, um, the people of Israel, when they fashioned the golden calf and they bowed down to it, they weren't thinking, oh man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to worship this false god and this false idol. That's not what they're thinking. They're just doing what's culturally normal in their day. They're doing what what the people of Egypt had set up as an example for them. This is what was normal in Egypt. Melt down some gold, make make an image, and worship that in order to move your human agenda forward. Idols are just cultural norms of our day. They're not these things that stand out to us. They're, They're things that blend in quite well. They're normal, everyday things. Look back at that text in Deuteronomy that I read at the very beginning, Deuteronomy 12. God says this, he says, take care that you be not ensnared, listen, to follow them, the cultures 
of the people of that day, the culture of the people of that land. Don't follow the common culture. After they've been destroyed before you and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? That I may do the same. How did they do it? What's their culture like? Let's adopt that. Let's do the same as the culture of the day. Idols are normal parts of our culture. They're usually good things. They're usually good things. Idols are not always bad things. In fact, they're usually good things. Things that we may need in order to survive. Things that we uh, may need in order to thrive. Things that we may need for our families to flourish. Um, These are normally good things. But when those things come in contact with the human heart, that's when idolatry is formed. Um, Ed Stetzer puts it this way. He says, um, is it that a 12-inch tall piece of wood or bronze can do something bad to us? Or is it that we do something awful to ourselves when we place adoration and attention that should go to God in other things? When it comes to idolatry, the danger is not in the item, it is in us. Idols are normal. Idolatry is simply plugging into the human system of our culture today. When you begin to kind of plug your heart into the human system of culture, like idolatry is instantly formed, right? When you begin to work um, 60, 70, 80, 90 hours a week, because that's just like the normal thing. That's what people in my office do. And it provides better things. It provides more money. It provides more stuff. It provides more flourishing. I enjoy my work. You have begun to serve the idol of work in order to move your human agenda forward. But it's just a normal cultural thing. It's not, it's not like a big thing. It's not a bad thing. Work is a good thing. You should, you should work. You should have a job. That's not a bad thing. Work is a good thing. You were designed and created by God to, to work. But when you begin to worship the idol of work, things begin to fall apart quickly. Um, maybe, maybe you worship um, a house. Maybe you saw a friend or somebody who built a brand new house, and it's, it's beautiful and aesthetically pleasing. And it's, it's so big and massive. You can spread out, and there's rooms for everything, rooms for this and rooms for that. So, man, that would lead to flourishing. That would bring me comfort and security and peace in my life, and it'd be so good for my family and so good for me. And, and if we could just have that. And so you, you, be, you take on a larger mortgage to buy something far bigger than you actually need, and you begin to to, to worship and work towards that in a way that idolizes it. You begin to serve the house rather than the house serving you. And we convince ourselves that we're not doing it, but we absolutely are. Our lives are built around, I need, to, I need to put in extra hours, I need to get a different job to pay this mortgage in order to afford this house because this thing is going to be private. For, you are serving the object and you don't even see it. You don't even, you don't even see it. What are the idols of our day? Well, there's a couple. Let me, let's, let's dive in a little bit deeper into a couple more, and then we'll, and we'll be done. Um, let's look at the, uh, the idol of identity. Um, identity is an idol of our day. It always has been, though. When we look at uh, King Saul, King Saul's idol was 
beyond any question, his, his identity, his glory, right? That was his, that was his idol. He was so afraid the people around him would see him in a lesser light. His identity, how he was viewed and perceived by people was so extremely important to him. He, he went to great lengths to serve his identity. And these great lengths involved things that were disobedient to God, right? Um, a few of those things that we could, we could be here all day if we listened to things that King Saul did in order to protect his identity. But, but Saul, um, he's going into battle and he knows that he needs God on his side. He knows he needs the presence of God. He's not, he's not a complete idiot. He knows he needs the presence of God. But the, the prophet Samuel, he's not there yet. He hasn't showed up yet to, to, get, to make the, the sacrifice in order to, on the altar for God. And so Saul's getting nervous. He's like, where is he? Let's go. Um, so he just takes matters into his own hands. It's the American, it's the American way. He's like, I'm just going to do it myself, right? And so he takes the bull. He kills the bull. He puts it on the, on the altar. He burns it. He's like, okay, done. Samuel shows up. He's like, what have you, what have you done? You're not the priest. You're not the prophet. You're the king. This is not your job. But he's so afraid to be seen as somebody who doesn't have control and power and authority that he steps out of the bounds of what God has for him. Again, when, he, when they attack the Philistines, right? Uh, a similar scenario, right? He's waiting and waiting and waiting on God to tell him what to do, and God, God's unresponsive. So he's like, all right, I'm the leader, I'm the king, I'm gonna sh- I gotta show everybody who I am, we're attacking. And they march in. And then kind of the, the, the last straw, right? Um, he, he goes into battle and God says, man, destroy everything. Destroy the city, destroy all they have, destroy all the people, just burn it to the ground. And Saul wins the battle, God gives him the battle. And in the end, he's like, well, these people are really wealthy and rich and this, there's some really nice stuff here. And so he destroys most of it, but then he keeps a lot for himself. He's like, well, I want to be seen as a just king who doesn't kill everybody. And I want to be as a wealthy king who owns all this wealthy stuff. I want to plunder all these goods. And here's what happens to Saul. Um, this comes from 1 Samuel 16, 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul worships the idol of his identity and his glory. And the presence of God says, I'm out. I'm not going to do this anymore. You, you, want, you think that flourishing's over there. You want to have those things. You want to do it your way. That's fine. Go. Friends, that's the most horrifying thing about the presence of God. Is that it'll give you over to your idols. God has fought and fought and fought and fought to bring you back into his presence. And when you say, you know what, I think, I think I'm going to go over here and do this thing, he says, okay, fine. It's horrifying to know that you might right now be lost in the idols of our day, these things that are blending with the rest of our culture, and you don't even know it, you don't even see it, and the presence of God is gone. It's gone. Saul was so afraid of losing what God had given him, he would do anything to keep it. Our friend J.R. Vassar writes it this way in his book, Glory Hunger. He says, the idol of the glory that comes from man can own us like no other idol. Let me just say that again. The idol that comes from the, the idol of the glory that comes from man can own us like no other idol. It can tell us how to think, what to feel, how to act, 
what to wear, and when to laugh. As a pastor, I've counseled people who have crossed boundaries they had never imagined simply to gain or keep the approval of others. Whether it's drowning in debt because they made purchases to keep up with the people they wanted to impress, or drowning in guilt after moments of moral compromise motivated by preserving another's affections for them, people do regrettable things from a desire to be visible and to feel valuable. We want to feel valuable. We want to be seen. I want people to like me. I want people to think much of me. I want want them to think that I'm successful, that I have it together. And we sacrifice the presence of God in order to feed those idols. Another idol, an idol is consumerism. It's a great massive idol of our day. We see it everywhere. This one isn't hidden. It's, it's, it's in plain sight, but we, we wade into it and never even realize it's happening. For the people of Israel, when, when Joshua died, right? Joshua was, was the leader after Moses and one of the greatest leaders in the history of Israel. Um, under his reign, the presence of God had never left him or the people. Joshua 1, God says, man, I'm never leaving you. I am with you wherever you go. I am never leaving you. And he never did. Joshua lived to be 110 years old. And when he died, right, the generation of Joshua kind of saw his leadership and said, what we need is the presence of God more than we need anything else. And so we're going to pursue the presence of God. But when that generation dies off, the next generation that kind of rises up never saw that model for them, never saw that example for them. And so what do they do? They begin to look at the other ways of the world. Say, so, well, look at what they have and look what they have. And they begin to long in this kind of consumeristic way for the things that other people have. Here's how it's written in Judges 2, uh, starting in verse 10. In all the generation, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. That means they, they died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, their God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord. They left his presence. They left his presence. And they served the Baals. In the Ashtoreth, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress." people of the nation of Israel begin to idolize other cultures and other things. And they begin to say, how do we attain those things? And again, remember how is it in ancient Israel, it wasn't like, okay, we got to go create a strategy on how to get more cattle and how to get a strategy on how to build better cities. No, it was like, we need their gods. They've got good cattle. We need that God. They, they got good cities. We need that God. We, they got good armies. We need that God. 
And they would go out and they would get the gods rather than the strategy. They, they knew intellectually what they need is the presence of God. God provides. They knew that truth. But they misunderstood. They misunderstood that it's the presence of the one true God is all that they will ever need. Joshua understood that. But this generation that came up after him did not understand it. Does that sound familiar at all? Does that look familiar at all in our, in our world today? I mean, we could, we could do this all morning long. We could talk about sex as an idol. We could look at King Solomon, who had it all, had it all. But in, in, at the end of his life, what, what ultimately, the presence of God left King Solomon because his heart was turned away from God. King Solomon left the presence of God because of the women in his life. Those women who worshipped all of these other gods, from all these foreign women, these, these Moabite women, these, these women from all of these different nations who worship all these different gods, they turned his heart away. We could talk about, um, we could talk about the idols um, of comfort and how, man, we will do anything, anything to seek our own comfort. Anything to seek my own comfort. We'll, we'll worship and seek and serve all of these idols in order to find our own comfort. We talk about the idol of our phones. How much do you serve your phone? You think, I mean, my phone's a tool that serves me. No, 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 no. You are paying into that. You're saving up for it. You're doing all of these things in order to serve your phone. You're protecting it. You're caring for it. You're serving your phone. It's become an idol in your life. An idol. And we wonder why the presence of God has left us. We could be here all day. I give you countless more, and I could show you scriptures where, where people have done the same thing in the same way that we're doing right now. Here's the thing that's most important that you must see. The presence of God, the presence of God is only available to those who love him more than they love anything else in this world. The presence of God is only available to those who love him more than they love anything else in this world. So is that true of you? And before you answer that question, I want you to think about this. All of the people that I talked about already from, from the Old Testament this morning would have said, I love God more than I love anything in the world. Solomon would have said that. King Saul would have said that. King, King Saul believed fully that he needed the presence of God. He loved God. He wanted the presence of God. The people of Israel would have said that. They would have said that. They're the people of Israel. They know the Bible better than you know it. They know. They love God. And they would have said, oh yeah, I love God more than anything. But they didn't. Idolatry creeps in. You don't see it coming. There's this human propensity towards the things of this world, believing that, man, in some way, shape, or form, I can manipulate the system of the, the culture of my day. I can manipulate it in order to bring me greater flourishing. We don't think about it that way. But that's exactly what we do. Is it true of you? Now, the good news is that I would say that right now in our culture, it's becoming clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer and easier and easier to see. 
There's a time, right, where we, we are kind of, we're kind of uh, at, the, at the last kind of wake, the last wake of Christendom. There's a time when our culture and Christianity were very much one and the same. We lived in this kind of Christian culture in the United States, and you couldn't quite tell, man, is this idolatry? Am I, am I following the culture of the day? Or, or, is this, or is this truly, am I truly a follower of Jesus? Um, and we live in this time when, when you couldn't really tell. And that's been gone for a long time, like a very, very, very long time. But we've been living in kind of the wake of that. And now the last few waves are lapping up onto the shore, and suddenly it's becoming more and more clear. I don't know if you've ever had a time where you've kind of gone to your closet and you pulled out like a, a shirt or a tie or a blouse, and you're like, this is black. And then you, and you kind of bring it out and you bring it into the light, and you're like, maybe it's blue. I think it's black, but it kind of looks blue. Like, you're like, how do you tell? You hold up the light, and you're like, no, I can't. Like it's, it kind of looks blue, but it's, I'm pretty sure it's black. How do you tell? When you place that up against something that's stark black, truly, truly black, you're like, oh, that's obviously blue. Like, that's very, 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 very blue. Um, I don't know how I couldn't tell that before, but, but it's, it's obviously very, very blue. In the same way, our culture is becoming more and more and more stark It's becoming so much clearer to see this is culture. This is the way of Christ. And so what does it look like for you to hold your life up against the lens of culture? And if you have to squint, if you have to squint, then idolatry marks your life. You're worshiping and serving the idols of our day. You stack your life next to the life of your neighbor who does not know Jesus, and you're like, other than the fact that I go to church, there's not much difference. Then you gotta ask yourself, do you really love God more than you love anything in the world? And if the answer is no, I think I might love myself more, which I'm going to be honest with you, for most of us, that's the right answer. And that's a good answer. The reason why it's a good answer is because it's a truthful answer. The more we live in kind of in, in this deception that I love God more than I love anything in the world, more than I love myself, the longer we will miss out on the presence of God. The sooner we can say, you know what, I think I might love this thing or that thing or most likely myself more than I love the God of all things, the quicker we can get to fixing that, which is what we're going to get to next week. But we must lift our life and stack it up against the contrast of the world and say, am I worshiping the idols of our day? So what will it be? Do you want presence or do you want popularity? Do you want money or mercy? Do you want sex or surrender? You can't have both. You can't have both. So what do we do? We're going to get into it next week, but I want to leave you with this verse from Galatians 5, 24 through 26. Paul writes this. It says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus, those who truly love God more than they love themselves, more than they love anything in this world, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We live by the Spirit. Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. 
Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The people who have truly said, I love God more than I love anything in the world, have killed their flesh, their human propensity towards idolatry, along with the desires of the things for this world. That's what it's going to take. That's where we're going to go next week. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we come before you right now, and I pray that there is a clarity in our minds that we would no longer kind of hide behind, oh, that's the ancient way, this is the new way. That we would say, man, I'm guilty of idolatry. I've made things in my life greater than God. I've loved and adored and given more time and thought to things more than you. I spend my day serving the idols of the world because I believe that they're going to bring me flourishing. I pray that you would lead us this morning into a place of confession, a place of repentance. Help us to see, help us to confess, help us to repent, and help us to put it to death. Help us to put it to death that we might live free from it and once again experience your presence. Praising is your name. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen, church. What you need more than anything in the world is the presence of God. What our world needs more than it needs anything is the presence of God. Let us be a people. Let us be a people who put to death our idolatry in order to regain that presence. I love you. We'll see you guys next week.